Hello and welcome to 60 Minutes With. I'm Steve Woolley and all regular listeners will know that this is not a regular voice. In fact, I have to confess, this is my podcasting debut. I joined the team last year as a reviewer on the website, but couldn't refuse the offer to visit the 60 Minutes studio complex and to talk about a favourite album. And I've got to tell you, it's a bit like Paisley Park here. Earlier I heard Dave and Tina recording a duet in the studio down the corridor and Chris has just popped his head out of Studio 6 to hand me a bottle of what looks like homemade cloudy cider. I'll try it later. It's a bit warm at the moment. So I thought for an initial broadcast I'll give a rather personal account of the 1989 album Hats by the Blue Nile. Never heard of it? It's an album and a band who, despite some degree of chart success, have always had a sense of mystery surrounding them. Over the years, Hats has attained the dreaded cult status, appearing in those 100 best album lists. But don't worry, it's not a hard listen. It's not a Coltrane album or a Trout Mass replica. This is an album for lovers, for loners, and the broken-hearted. Pretty much everybody, then. However... If you've heard the band before, then I have to inform you that I'm probably in love with you already, and you can expect an invitation to a candlelit dinner shortly. At the time of the album's release, I would describe myself as a music journalist. Yes, I'm afraid I was that pretentious, and the reality was I was submitting reviews for fanzines and the odd magazine, and generally not getting paid but they would often throw me a bone in the shape of a free album to review, or adding my name to the guest list for an unsigned band playing the and chickens. I had two equally deluded friends who would tell anybody that they were in the music business. The reality was one worked for a local record shop, was totally into all things indie, and had the kind of acne that a braille reader could get a decent short story out of, and he lived with his mum. The other was much worse, a former psychiatric nurse who was encouraged by his employers to change his career path as he was depressing the patients. He now claimed to work for a major label. I can't reveal which one, but it began with a V and aptly described his love life. I think he fixed the photocopiers. He was totally into classic rock and heavy metal and would insist on turning up to gigs dressed in a three-piece suit. You've probably seen him. He was known as the moving target at Castle Donington. Oh, and he lived with his mother as well. He probably still does. Me? Well, I like a bit of everything. You should see me at the buffet table. Nevertheless, between the three of us, we had shared resources and the use of a mini metro and could usually get to two or three gigs a week. This was pre-internet, of course and all the prize details on tour dates and album releases came from a combination of trade mags, the music press and rumour. Most Wednesdays we would meet, clutching copies of Sounds, Melody Maker or The Enemy, and squabble over who got what ticket to what, and who got the, spared, who got the Spear of Destiny album. During one of these sessions I was asked if I wanted to go and see the Blue Nile in Birmingham, and I says yes straight away. I didn't know much about them, other than they had released a single, Tinseltown in the Rain, from the first album, and I really liked it. It had an 
almost mournful vocal and yet the music had got a real groove underneath it which put me in mind of the Talking Heads and I was a massive Talking Heads fan. Once in a kind of weird tribute to David Byrne I had decided to give up smiling. I managed six weeks quite easily but cracked at the New Order concert when a guy in front of me hoisted his girlfriend on his shoulders so she could get a better view of the band and none of us behind could. I then noticed she was repaying the favour by enthusiastically urinating down his back. I mean, some things are funny. So on a September evening in 1990, me and my plus one went to Birmingham's town hall. If you've never been there, just imagine that the Parthenon has crash-landed on top of a department store. You're pretty much there. The interior's layout means that the stage was dwarfed by a raised semicircular dais where the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra usually sit and a large cathedral-like organ that you rather expected the Phantom of the Opera to appear and start banging out UB40 numbers. Onto this stage wandered three nervous-looking Glaswegians, Paul Buchanan, PJ Moore and Robert Bell and they then proceeded to flood the building with beautiful music. This was the era that where electronic instruments had become inexpensive and you could pick up a keyboard in Woolworths. The, charge, the charts were dominated with synths generally fucking up the middle eight on most pop songs. However, the electronic music this band were creating was layered, not artificial, and they knew the concept that sometimes less can be more and could strip it back down to just a vocal and a drum beat. Like my other heroes, Kraftwerk, whose sound so, music sounded almost orchestral and not artificial, and they had somebody who could sing rather than Ray Futter's German monotone. It was one of those concerts that seemed to be over before it had started, and the band singer Paul Buchanan had to confess that they'd run out of songs and would we like to hear Tinseltown again? Of course, we says yes, and I remember leaving the venue. It was still daylight, I said to my girlfriend. We've just got to go back and see this band again. We never did, but I'll get to that later. The following day, I went to my friend's record shop and purchased the Hats album and played it obsessively for the next few weeks. There was a mystery here. The band didn't give a lot away. You got a CD with little information other than a track listing, no booklet, with the lyrics, just the cover. An image of a head turned away, and of course wearing a hat. What was the significance? Was the singer wearing a metaphorical hat for each song and adopting a different persona? Maybe they just like trilbies. Anyway, I was hooked, and I purchased the debut album, which didn't yield much more information on the band, but gave another set of beautiful songs. What I did eventually find out through reading a couple of interviews was that the band had formed at Glasgow University and was named after the title of a 1962 book by Alan Moorhead which had, and had they been approached by the hi-fi manufacturer Lean Products who had asked them to produce a song that would demonstrate their high-end Lin equipment. The story went that Lin was so impressed that they offered to set the band up with their own record label specifically to release their debut album, A Walk Across the Rooftops in 84, and the band had spent another three years making a follow-up. 
The first song I've chosen from the album is the opening track Over the Hillside. And this to me had to be the opening track. As about it as it's about the longing for and the returning to home. It's probably the only track that gives a ref- reference to the sort of Scottish geographical location. There's references to moorlands, ferry ports and hillsides. Having travelled around the Scottish coast, I know that many people had moved there in order to make a living on the water, from the maritime industries to the rigs and refineries. There are those that leave home and move away for financial reasons, to make a so-called better life, but carry with them a longing for the birthplace. Going deeper, it made me think of the Scottish clearances, when tenants were kicked off the land by absentee landlorder, landlords in order to farm sheep and were scattered to the wind. Generation, generations later, people with Mac in the same name wondered about a country thousands of miles away. You can get that with the Bay City Rollers.
remaining songs on the album have much more of an urban setting and to me it's a best, an album best played at night with its references to light neon street lights, car headlights, traffic lights I've played this wandering round Times Square and on a night drive through Paris and it transposes itself very well on one December night with snow in the air I sat in a hot tub on top of a hill in Devon played it full blast to the valley below it was partially to welcome in the new year and partially to annoy a member of the cast of the Emmerdale Farm soap opera who was staying in a cottage below we archers fans can bear a grudge anybody who's moved to a large town or city knows the euphoria of having access to so much stimulation in one place overloading the senses this of course can be tempered with a feeling of isolation, of being alone within crowds of strangers and reaching out and longing for physical contact. There's two songs that reflect this. Let's go out tonight. A plea just by the act of going out into the city could cure a problem with a relationship. And from a midnight train where our hero reflects and laments the loss of a romance as the train moves slowly away. They have echoes of Sinatra's No One Cares album, Tom Waits' own downtown train, and Grand Parsons' Streets of Baltimore, all wrapped up in an Edward Hopper painting. And talking of art, around that time I was writing, and again not getting paid for, a variety of comic fanzines and magazines. This was definitely the pre-Geek Chic of the Big Bang Theory Avengers Assemble up the Dark Knight's back passage that it is today. In the late 80s and early 90s, to be over 18 and in position of a comic book meant that you were either considered to be somebody with, it, with special needs or a paedophile using them as a bait. It was less embarrassing to buy pornography. The whole scene was on underground and mostly centred around specialist shops. But a couple of fanboys, Frank and Hassan, had organised a convention in London which had coincided with the British invasion of writers and artists into the American mainstream. The first convention was the comic book equivalent of seeing the Sex Pistols at the 100 Club. You could go into the bar and chat with the likes of Alan Moore, Kevin O'Neill, Neil Gaiman and Frank Miller. and They didn't charge you for it. I met a couple of arty types who were a bit nervous but local to me and we kind of formed a kind of friendship and if you think my music pals were oddballs you should have seen these guys. When Frank and Hassan announced that they were holding a Scottish convention in Glasgow I suggested to my new friends that we should go and talk about shamanism with Grant Morrison, Eddie Campbell and Alan Grant but they were appalled. It's Glasgow. We're English. We'll stab us as soon as we open our mouths. This prejudice probably came from watching two episodes of Rabsey Nesbitt. And I hate this kind of attitude people have about places they've never been to in their own country. It's like when stand-up comics throw in a put-down of a town for a cheap laugh and then do five minutes on their racists or wankers. I pointed out to them that they were dressed in Roman sandals with white socks topped off with overcoats and fingerless gloves. They'd probably get a slap walking out their own house. And besides, I'd rode for a couple of bands and Scotland's were 
Scotland was cool. What I didn't tell them, there was mainly country and western bands, and the audience had generally been firing blanks in the six-shooter. So, one morning, we boarded a train at Wolverhampton Station and headed for Glasgow, complete with a stereo playing a selection of Cocteau Twins, Aztec Camera, and of course the Blue Nile, in an attempt to ingratiate ourselves with the locals. I love Glasgow straight away. It was, it's a great city to walk around, and this was the Glasgow of pre-gentrification, and it had an anarchic attitude. You get a trendy art gallery that would be set right next to a chip shop, and you get another uh, Italian couture shop next to a off-license that had chicken wire in the centre of the shop, separating the punters from the booze and the cigarettes. I found Jesus in Glasgow or rather Salvador Dali's magnificent painting of Christ of St John of the Cross, a Kelvin Grove art gallery. I've still got a postcard of it, together with a sketch of Johnny Alpha from the Strontium Dog cartoon that Carlos Ascara did for me. Both works of art, for different reasons. I took to the streets on Saturday night, which is coincidental, the to- uh, coincidentally a title of the song on the album, and people watched with a copy of Hats playing on a device that was once known as a Walkman. There are several songs on the album that deal with love, and that sometimes the feeling that when it's so new and intense, and the only thing that matters in the world is you and the person that you're in love with, on such as songs such as Headlights on the Parade and my next selection, The Downtown Lights, you get a feeling of this intensity of the relation that gives the city that you are walking through a cinematic quality where the streets are stages and other people are extras in your movie. The downtown lines paints a picture and paints that picture and then three quarters of the way through it changes track and the guitar is brought to the front and Paul delivers a cut up of film noir images of cigarettes rented room which culminates in a crescendo and a line that I would hear in real life many years later. I was on a bus to Glasgow Airport and two girls in front of me were talking about the weekend plans and when one mentioned a party the other replied to her, oh no I'm sick of crying on the stairs. I wanted to tap her on the shoulder and ask if this was a common saying or was life imitating art or was she a Blue Nile fan? Of course I said nothing and buried my face, face in a copy of 2000 AD. Still hadn't grown up. Oh, and a po- as a postscript to the trip, I'm afraid one of our group never made it back. Andrew met a real-life girl in King Tut's World War Hut and refused to come home. He still lives there now, despite me reminding him that he's probably invalidated the terms and conditions on his return rail ticket. After Hats, the band disappeared for seven years until the release of Peace at Last in 1991, and by then a lot had changed. I'd gone back to uni and was in an attic writing a dissertation and studying for finals. I got the CD for company, and it was clear that the band had changed too. Don't get me wrong, it's a wonderful album. Both both the music and the narrative have moved on. There's more acoustic guitar, there's even a 
gospel choir on the song Happiness, which counterpoints the song Family Life, which is one of the saddest songs ever recorded, and one I insist on playing my family each Christmas as a reaction to the enforced jollity. The band did tour with peace at last, but I, by that time I'd gone to India, man, and missed it. And as if to seek revenge, the band took another six years to record their final album, High, in 1997. It's another excellent album. But the band didn't exactly split up after, but just more evaporated. Paul toured with Robert Bell, singing Blue Nile material in 2006, before emerging as a singer-songwriter with a debut solo album, Midair, in 2012. And recently, in March 2017, Paul said he was three-quarters of the way through a new album. So in Earth years, we might get something by 2020.
If you enjoyed listening to the tracks featured, it's worth notice that some, noticing that some of the band's albums are available on Spotify. And I have to mention the very active Blue Nile Facebook group, who in 2016 organised a gathering of fans in Glasgow with attendees flying in from all over the globe and jaws hit the floor when Paul Buchanan popped in for a drink. I was stuck on a boat in Wales and had to make do with listening to that with a malt whisky and a sausage sandwich for company. Thanks for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe and rate this at iTunes, but be kind, I'm new. And if you wish to know more about up-and-coming podcasts, reviews and competitions, then you can follow us at Twitter at 60 Minutes With. And if you'd like to follow me, Solidaire01. Thanks for listening, and I hope I pass the audition. God bless you, kid. <laughs>